Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. Welcome to another episode of Sexology podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Today, we're privileged to welcome Natasha Helfer, a seasoned ASAC certified sex therapist and licensed marriage and family therapist. With a wealth of experience spanning nearly 30 years, Natasha's work uniquely addresses the delicate balance between conservative religious upbringing and sexuality, with a keen focus on dismantling internalized sexual shame. In today's episode, we will delve into the weighty concept of religious trauma and its profound impact on one's sexuality. Natasha will illuminate the telltale signs of sexual shame rooted in faith-based backgrounds and share her effective therapeutic approaches for healing and reclaiming sexual identity. We will also explore the pivotal role of faith and spirituality in the healing process, as well as the significance of support system in this transformative journey. You can check out Natasha's full bio in the show notes. And remember, we have an upcoming live show that absolutely you don't want to miss. It's a chance to connect with me and a few of my favorite sex podcasters. We're going to talk about some of our favorite topics. I'm going to do a workshop on how to bring sexual novelty in the bedroom. My other friend, who's the host of Sluts and Scholars, Nicolotta, she's going to talk about finding your yes. 
Dr. Tara. We're going to talk about sexual communication. And the host of Girl Boner August will tell you sizzling orgasm stories. We've been meeting up to fine-tune the programs, and I'm super, super excited. Make sure you are getting your ticket now. The event is on February 10th in L.A., you also can get virtual tickets. We have tons of cool stuff in the swag bag that you can claim. And more importantly, I would love to see you. It's definitely a trip whenever I can talk to my audience, I can connect with that. So if you can attend it, it would really mean a lot to me. All right, get ready to be inspired and enlightened as we embark on this sensitive and significant conversation with Natasha Helfer. Hello there. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to welcome Natasha Halsbert to our show. Natasha, welcome to our show. I am so excited to be here with you. Thank you so much. I am very excited about this conversation. Our listeners, they know that I work with sometimes with more of a conservative community. And my understanding is that as part of the community that you also work with. And today I was thinking about sexual shame related to upbringing more toward a kind of conservative background. So can you tell us a little bit about the religious trauma and its impact in people's sexual health? Yeah, yeah, it's a big question. And of course, religion is complex and not all religion is the same. And as most things, there's a spectrum from, you know, conservative, fundamental even religions to, of course, progressive and and very welcoming and affirming religions in regards to sexuality. So I guess where I'm going to focus more of my discussion will be more on the fundamental, strict and conservative religious kind of groupings, because they tend to be the ones that are more prohibitive when it comes to sexual behavior, sexual ideals, sexual morals, and kind of what's considered correct or quote unquote righteous in regards to religious dogma, if if that makes sense. So when we're talking about trauma, I I think right off the bat, I just want to be clear that not all religion causes trauma and not all religious beliefs cause trauma. But what we're speaking about is when people are living in in belief structures where it's so prohibitive and so against self-determination and there are fear tactics or guilt tactics or coercive tactics that can really leave people feeling not as connected with themselves. A lot of people don't necessarily understand that there is religious trauma until they go through some type of a faith transition themselves. So so what I'm really talking about is, is religious trauma from beliefs. Now, there's also the type of religious trauma where just because you're part of a religious community and there's maybe ecclesiastical abuse or sexual abuse, you know, the Catholic Church, of course, has gotten a lot of uh, media attention for some of the issues that they had and the lawsuits that they've had to deal with. And, and I think that happens in many church communities, if not all church communities, there's potential for abuses to happen. So that's a different type of religious trauma than maybe what I'm referring to today. Absolutely. And sometimes people, like when it comes to the trauma related to belief, is that they don't have awareness on how much it impacts them. I know that like growing up in more of a conservative community, not necessarily in a religious family, I wasn't aware of how much I internalized some of the messages. So, and I see that that's the case for many people. And it's really get in the way of them connecting with their own body and pleasure and with their partner. 
Yes, right. It's hard to know what water feels like if you live in the ocean, <laughs> right? So it is. It's and and that's why I think it's difficult to talk about because I and you know and I've gone through my own spectrums of religious belief and everything and. And if I had heard at certain aspects of my life that, you know, I was being oppressed by my religion or that I was being harmed by religion, I would have taken great offense to that. I would have not understood that or seen that as my lived experience. Of course, now with a different set of beliefs and different perspectives and also more education and psychological education, I'm able to see how some of those things were indeed harmful to me. But I would have not agreed with that at the time. And so that is, that is challenging. And I think especially as mental health professionals, or if you're seeing a mental health professional, it's it's difficult to have that relationship where you're trying to share what your lived experience is. And maybe a professional has their idea of what's healthy or unhealthy, and that doesn't always match up. So that's a struggle. That's a wrestle. I think we just all need to know that those biases are there and, and it's okay. And you know, it's okay to kind of try to meet people where they're at. However, if people are interested or or at least curious as to what could be some things, I I don't think any of us escape this, quite frankly. I mean, I think between culture and media and religion and family, <laughs> you know, all kind there's all kinds of messages that we get specifically about sexuality that are not necessarily that beneficial to us. So we, you know. Are, are you in a space where you can consider what are some of the messages I received? Were those messages, even if they were protective and in intention, were they also limiting my ability to consider the possibilities of my sexuality? And anything as simple as masturbation to something as more complex like sexual orientation. There are many myths and ideas that we have floating around in just our United States culture just around those two issues, even gender identity, that have a lot to say about how you should show up, how you should be, instead of actually being curious about how are you going to explore yourself and figure out who you are. And sometimes people have, especially parents, they have this lens of this is a protective factor, right? If I don't teach my teenager or adolescent about sex or pleasure, it just prevents them from engaging in those behaviors. But they have this expectation of as soon as people get married or they're in a committed relationship, their beliefs change immediately. And we know that's not the case for majority of people. You'll continue to be the same person. And kind of because you internalize those beliefs, how can these limiting beliefs or negative messages that people receive can show up in their interpersonal sexual experiences? Yeah, right. So you're absolutely right. Just because we don't educate doesn't mean that people aren't still sexual. Right? So we're, we're, we tend to be as a human being a, a sexually curious person. That, that's not true of everybody, but it's true of the majority of folks. And that's true even as toddlers and as small children and, of course, preteens and adolescents and, of course, emerging adults. We're, we're all sexually curious in different developmental ways in all of those ages. So we as parents and also as religiously conservative folks are oftentimes sitting with an anxiety, an anxiety around that curiosity, because we feel like sexual safety is best found in maybe a committed relationship or a marital relationship or a relationship in a marriage with somebody who is part of your community, you know, those kinds of things. And 
And I always try to remind people, your body doesn't know if you're Catholic, your body doesn't know if you're Mormon, your body doesn't know if you have certain values or not. It just has a sexual drive within it and and it will express it, you know, whether you have education or not. And the research is very clear that that actually it's it's it may feel counterintuitive for parents that the less information you give, the more risk there is sexually. And the more information there is does not necessarily mean that people will be less sexual, but they will actually be safer in the risks that they take with their sexuality. So that's, I think, a wrestle that a lot of parents and religious leaders and, and other folks may have, especially when educating teens and, and emerging adults. So, and the other thing that you're talking about is kind of like this turn it off switch, turn it on switch, right? It'd be nice if you could say, okay, you know what? I I don't want to worry about my sexuality until I'm 25. I'll just push the off button. <laughs> when I'm 25, I'll just somehow magically turn it on and all the, all the good sexual things will happen. <laughs> but when you start teaching children and teens at an age, especially through fear tactics, guilt tactics, which you find a lot of times in religious communities, this idea that your sexual actions make you unworthy, that your sexual fantasies are forbidden, that these are these are no-nos, these are things that disappoint not only your parents, but something as big as a, as a divine being who is maybe all-knowing or all-seeing and that has impact on your eternal salvation and whether or not you might get to some to a place called heaven or a place called hell that is oftentimes met with a lot of provocative language like fiery damnation and gnashing of teeth. These are very provocative forms of imagery that a lot of children are hearing from a very young age. And then as they notice their sexual curiosity or their desire to touch their own bodies or their ideas about being attracted to somebody, even if it's heterosexually, but especially if it's homosexual or bisexual attraction, and those ideas are definitely seen as sinful or evil or wrong or perverse. These are kind of some of the words that kids are hearing from an early age. You can start seeing how their ideas about being righteous and good and being okay with their God now kind of goes in direct conflict with what their bodies and what their minds are naturally exploring and, and being curious about. And so this can be very confusing to children, to adolescents, if you add even the further complication that we know many people actually do experience sexual trauma on top of this, that's even an even added confusion, right? Like, why did I have this thing happen to me? Does that mean I'm already, quote unquote, damaged goods? Am I damaged in some way? Did I do something wrong to provoke that abuse? Did I seduce somebody these are things that can also lead to a lot of self-shame. And like, you know, I love that you're using the word internalize. Internalize means that you don't really consciously know it's there, but boy, is it brewing and it's you're So now you're developing sexually from this place of shame, fear, trying to conform maybe to the values of your community or to your religion. But your body, again, doesn't know that that's the case. It just knows that you know, touching your vulva or your penis might feel good <laughs> and and it might be soothing and it might help you go to sleep, especially when you're even as young as two or four or six years old. 
and and these attractions that you might have, those are not things that we get to control who we are attracted to or what kinds of things might turn us on. And so now you feel like, oh, this is my fault. There's something wrong with me. I'm I'm sick or I'm evil or I'm being led away by Satan. That's another belief that can be very problematic if you believe in like a demon or a satanic force that can have an influence on you. These are scary things. These are scary things. And once you get married, even if you did stay, quote unquote, pure, virginal, righteous, and all of a sudden now you're getting married and having sex for the first time, it doesn't mean that all of that just washes away. You're having sex for the first time from this space of only having known a lot of fear and guilt. So yeah, that interferes with pleasure. That interferes with orgasm. That interferes with performance, right? That interferes with erections. That interferes with lubrication, all the things that make sex juicy and fun and playful and easy. You brought up so many great points. One of the things that I often hear from my clients is the fear of their fantasies, that they think about their only people or thinking about this, they're perverted. But when, when we're looking at research, some of these fantasies are very, very common. And I don't know that maybe you can suppress your desire, but I don't think that is part of kind of being sexually active is leaning into fantasy and pleasure and all of that. But again, because people don't have that education, that can be very scary or even kind of like as he's talked about with sexual orientation, people get scared of uh, what does it mean that if they have same-sex attraction, what does that entail? So all of those things can be very complicated. And I know that in the United States, we no longer think conversion therapy, right, is something that you do. But I often have clients that they're just so scared of their same-sex attraction and they're willing to do anything and everything to eliminate that. And it's so unfortunate that there are still practices that promotes things that are not evidence-based. Yes, I, I would totally agree with that. That's a whole nother reason to have some trauma that is religiously based is that you've been sent to a conversion therapist or expected to change your sexual orientation or your sexual interests. Unfortunately, in the field of psychology, we have tried all those things. I mean, to the point that we have electrocuted genitals, we have done kind of some horrific things throughout the years to try to change people's sexual preferences and orientations. And so far, that has not worked. It does not work. I'm not exactly sure who coined this phrase, but, you know, it's one of my favorite phrases is if you go to war with your sexuality, you will lose. And we have lost a lot to the point that people can become suicidal. People can have huge mental health symptoms, relational health symptoms, trust of self, trust of partners. And all of these things interfere with the kind of pleasure and easiness that we are hoping people can develop in their sexual relationships. So it's very, very serious, right? I usually call sexual shame the one of the biggest public health crises, and we don't treat it as such. We're not, you know, we're all worried about COVID, of course, and other pandemics and health concerns. And that sexual shame kind of goes to the core and, and it can affect you, even your physical health. Like, I mean, some of this is tied to even like your gastrointestinal issues, stress, heart disease, you know, all those things that, that happen with that. So yes, I, I, I think that this is a very serious matter. And I, you know, I think that another thing that happens in religious communities often when you talk about fantasy is that there's this teaching that your thoughts will condemn you. You know, it's like, 
this idea that, well, if you have a thought, it will lead to a behavior. And that's the beginning of the end, right? That's the beginning of the slippery slope to sin and to perniciousness, et cetera. And that is really not how fantasy works. There's a lot of wonderful work that Justin Miller has done around fantasy work. Most people stay in fantasy lane. If you think about how we played when we were kids and how even kids heal through trauma is through play. You know, if you go to like, I don't know, I lived in the Midwest for so long that, you know, there was a lot of old tornadoes. So what are kids doing if a tornado has happened? They're playing tornado. Does that mean that they want a tornado to come? Does that mean that they are happy that the tornado came? But it's through play and through creativity that people play through themes. And so, yes, I mean, I, I, I oftentimes share that when I was young, I mean, I probably, you know, play killed my brothers 500 bajillion times playing G.I. Jane. Does that mean that I really wanted to kill my brothers? Of course, not. I was hugely protective over my brothers, right? But that was fun play. So sometimes in play, you, you deal with, with issues of violence, issues of power dynamics, issues around creativity, issues of fantasy, like, you know, just pretending that I am an alien, for example, or pretend, you know, who knows? It's fun. It's playful. But for some reason, we think that our erotic templates need to match our political safety templates. So I can have political leanings or or at least political correctedness, you know, and for example, I, I, I'm very much a feminist. And yet in a lot of my sexual play, I like to play submissive. Right. So how do I make sense of that if I don't understand that how I am in reality might be very different than how I show up in my fantasy? And if I feel guilty about that, oh, no, I shouldn't be a submissive or I shouldn't like a power player. I shouldn't like to be treated roughly while I'm having sex. Then I shut down an entire aspect of my sexuality that could bring about so much pleasure, especially when those themes are dealt with correctly, like with consent and with communication and with, you know, correct power dynamics in the actual play space. I love that you compared it to the children play or kind of playfulness, right? That because it comes with this idea of creativity. And I know many people struggle with having passionate sexual experiences because they're not connected with eroticism, their creative self and they're just not into the scripts that it was handed to them. So I think as we're kind of like allowing ourselves, giving ourselves permission to lean into pleasure, it can help us to discover part of ourselves and our partner that can be very, very exciting. One of the other things that I often see that there are kind of subtle messages around pleasure, right? And the like the role of each gender and all genders, how does that show up in that kind of like script that can be very limiting. So for people that are kind of curious if they have residual sexual shame from their kind of like conservative upbringing, what are some of the ways that they can assess it? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And there's there's lots of questions, you know, it's like, well, what kinds of things make me feel uncomfortable? Do I feel like that discomfort just comes from a natural preference? All of us have preferences, right? So we're not meant to be comfortable with everything. <laughs> and we differ. We're we're widely diverse. But is it more is it more because it feels like, oh, that that feels a little naughty and taboo? And what would my mother say if she knew? Or what what would our kids think if they knew that we did this thing? That that's kind of like a shame 
type of response versus, wow, that's really just unappealing. I'm not sure that I really would enjoy that, you know, take something, for example, that maybe is is in the kink world, you know, like something as simple as being spanked to something maybe more taboo, like a golden shower. You know, some people might be like, oh, that's enticing. But ooh, if people knew, I wouldn't I wouldn't want them to know that I was into that. That's a shame response versus like, wow, that's interesting that people like that, but that really isn't my cup of tea. That's more like a preference response, right? And so that's that's one way you can consider it. I also think that even though in a lot of ways some of our sexuality is is fixed and just it's not necessarily something that we can shift and change, changes can happen organically and fluidly. So by, you know, I, I would say there are things that I enjoy doing sexually now that I did. I found quite distasteful when I was, you know, 10 years younger or something. And maybe some of that had to do with shame that I had not, you know, undergone or, or, or worked through. But I think some of that just has to do with life experience and being open to new ideas. Sometimes, I mean, I, I oftentimes make a lot of metaphors towards food. First time I tried Brussels sprouts, not my preference, you know, not my preference. And that was a, na- I don't think I had Brussels sprout shame. It just really wasn't my preference. <laughs> but over time, I, it's like one of my favorite dishes, right? So as I was willing to lean in, as I was willing to try it, as I gained experience and age and um, maybe my taste buds changed, you know, whatever, our brains are consistently changing as we develop even into adult development. Some of the things you may have found distasteful might be tasteful now. It's It goes the other way too. Maybe some things that you used to really enjoy, eh, not so much anymore, you know, that maybe I that's not as exciting to me as it used to be. So I think understanding that there is a fluidity and an openness to as long as you are open to considering things. And and I think one of the ways that you can start practicing that is to to it's okay to have a negative response to something, but when you have a judgmental response, that's maybe where you can say, huh, why am I being judgy about this? You know, and, and kind of a colloquial way to say this is don't yuck my yum and don't yum my yuck, right? So it's like, If somebody says to me, well, I'm really into, you know, ejaculating, you know, on your breasts or on your face. And I might say, yeah, that sounds super fun. That's fun. Or I might say, well, that's really not something I want to experience at all. But I don't don't have to be like, what? Yeah. Why? Why do you want to do that? What's wrong with you? That's a judgmental response. Versus I think growing in our sexual maturity and getting rid of that shame is just being able to say, you know what, it's okay that somebody has a sexual preference I don't have. I don't have to, I don't have to necessarily feel judgmental about it. And boy, have we been trained to be judgmental about sex. (laughs) (laughs) It's fascinating. Sometimes clients want your personal preference, right? Because because they think about, okay, are you into this? But always they say like, okay, it doesn't matter, right? Like if you like your food, like if I'm vegetarian or love steak, it doesn't make a difference for what would be good for you. The other thing that I was thinking about is this idea of, building tolerance that we hear from the sexual addiction community, right? That like, okay, if you have like, when they talk about sexual addiction, you're building tolerance and like you're escalating things. And the way I look at it, it's a evolution of one's taste. It does it. I don't see it in the same way that if you're kind of like drinking two glasses of wine, now you need three glasses for same effect. So that's why I think sometimes people 
because of their shame, they confuse the evolution with kind of like thinking about as slippery slope. Yeah, that's a great point. And of course, that's a huge part of religious trauma, too, is is so much of the sex addiction model has taken hold in, in conservative religious communities. And it's really, unfortunately, an ineffective and non, non-evidence-based approach. And so this tolerance thing, I mean, that's just true of all things human. If you start playing Tetris, you're not going to want to stay on level one. That might have been fun when you first started, but then you get bored. It's boring. We are not creatures that want to stay with the same thing. We are creatures that want more intensity. Most of us grew up. What's the first scary movie that you can think of that you've watched? You know, for me, it was Bambi. I was terrified, terrified by Bambi. <laughs> if I want to go watch a scary movie now, I can guarantee you it's not Bambi. I have I have developed tolerance to <laughs> violence, you know, as an adult, and I can handle something a little bit more scary than Bambi. That's why maybe I enjoy watching CSI, right? So do we say, oh, you're addicted to violence because you now have grown so much in your tolerance that you can't stay at the Bambi level. You've got to get to the CSI level, right? So there is some of that that happens for everyone. Most of us want a little bit more novelty, a little bit different. At the same time, especially when it comes to erotic materials, which is usually what sex addiction about is our relationship with pornography, most people kind of stick to what they like. They might sh- they might shift a little bit as they start, you know, again, like what you used to like watching when you were 15 or 19 is probably different than what you enjoy watching when you're 40 or 50 years old. But we also kind of get into our routines and to our, the things that we enjoy and the things we just kind of go back to similar things. So this idea that somehow you're going to continue to develop tolerance until you become a pedophile or a criminal or there's zero evidence to support that. That is not how that kind of behavior develops is, is through the tolerance of watching the erotic materials. It goes to your point of kind of like fear-based approaches through religion, right? Like I'm thinking about, okay, if you open that door to pleasure, then you will never be able to stop. Right. And that's that's exactly true. I mean, I do think that there are times that we struggle with impulsivity or compulsivity, that might be true around food. That might be true around how we spend money. That might be true on how much Netflixing we're doing. <laughs> I mean, most of us struggle with finding balance in our lives. And, and in, in our sex lives, it can be similar where we might be concerned that we have an interest or, or, or an impulsive type of thing. But that's, that's usually we treat those things by seeing what's the actual correctly assessed underlying problem whether that could be personality disorders, something like a mental health disorder, like depression or anxiety or PTSD even. What happens a lot of times with religious PTSD is that there's such a learned anxiety response to behaviors that you feel like, oh, I shouldn't even be wanting these things, that it can actually create more desire for that thing. And that's sometimes how that compulsive kind of behavior begins. I've worked with so many folks coming out of religious spaces that felt like they were, quote unquote, addicted to pornography. And once they gave themselves more permission and just understood human sexuality and understood their drive and understood more what that was about, they're either one, they started realizing that that their that their frequency wasn't really actually that abnormal. It wasn't what we would consider problematic anyway from a clinical perspective. Or if, or if their frequency had been higher, they actually lower kind of naturally because now this anxiety is lowering. 
So that's not pornography's fault that that anxiety is there. It's all the belief system around what pornography means to people that will actually lead them to be more engaged with the pornography. It's almost like dieting, right? We know that if you go on a diet, it's it's probably when I eat the most Krispy Kreme donuts, right? <laughs> so I haven't eaten a Krispy Kreme donut in two months, but if I'm going to go on a diet, all of a sudden I want to eat 10 of them at a time, right? So it's that anxiety response. And that's not the donut's fault. That's that's the idea that I need to be so per- perfect and so able to control through willpower my desires and my drives that it's so unsustainable that my body responds in a way that wants it even more. Tasha, I was thinking exactly the same thing, right? When we do a treatment of binge eating disorder, I used to work more on the eating disorder realm. And like when you tell people like, legalize all type of food, there is a period of time that people kind of like, even their binges can increase until it levels off because now you're legalizing things that you kind of like thought it would be so taboo. But like as you are legalizing them, then your desire to have it gets level off. And I experienced the same thing with porn for people or kind of like secretive part of like washing porn alone and the challenges that comes with it when it's connected to the shame part. So for people that they want to find their journey toward healing, like maybe they want to remain in their faith-based community, but they want to develop a positive relationship with their sexuality, what are some of the steps that you recommend them to take to improve their relationship with pleasure and sexuality? Yeah, it is It is more challenging for those who maybe want to stay attached, especially if it is a more high demand or strict religion, because they may not find that support within the religion to, to have a little bit of flexibility, right? Because sometimes it can be this all or nothing approach. However, there are ways that people can lean into self-authority. There are ways that people can interpret even scripture. You know, a lot of times I'm very interested in kind of the scriptures people come with and what their beliefs are. And and what I have found in almost all religious scripture is that there's ethical dilemmas. That's what makes scripture interesting. It's not that people followed all the rules. That would be kind of a boring story. <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, I have this dilemma. Do I lie and tell people that this woman is my my sister or do I let them know that she's my wife, but then she'll be in danger, right? So do I follow the commandment and be honest or do I follow my principle of being protective, right? So if people can just understand that the conflicts of principles and values are are constantly part of our lives, it's as simple as whether or not you're going to tell your best friend, are you going to choose honesty that you hate their haircut or are you going to choose politeness and kindness and say, yeah, that's great that you got that haircut. You know, so We have these values ethics all the time. So if people can sit into a more comfortable space and say, OK, I understand my leaders say this. I understand that this is the, the general interpretation. Another scripture I usually like to to refer to is by the fruit you shall know them. Well, how is this fruit showing up in my life? Are we having good sex? Are we having pleasurable times? Are we having orgasms? Is there a huge orgasm gap in our marriage, for example? Am I dealing with anorgasmia? Am I dealing with premature ejaculation? What I mean, some of the treatments from a sex therapy perspective might include masturbation, might include fantasy, you know, developing fantasies, creating more stimulation through erotic imagery, or even if you don't want to watch actual erotic imagery, you know, you can imagine it or, you know, listen to stories or things like that. So how can I find creative ways 
to tap into what the principles are that are more relationally focused instead of being so stuck in the in the actual behaviors like I, I it's a yes or a no you know because sometimes even in scripture people have done things that are they're really commanded against even you know murder and things like that for for other reasons that had higher principles so can we approach our sex lives like that you know because what we've been trying through this kind of more fundamental or orthodox approach isn't bearing the fruit that we want, which is that connection, that passion, that longevity, especially for people who are who believe in monogamy and heterosexual marriage. We know that, you know, you may struggle with desire after 10 or 20 years if you're not willing to get a bit creative, get a little bit, you know, out of the box, and maybe also deal with some of this unresolved trauma that may come from either actual physical trauma or what I call spiritual religious trauma with all these ideas that maybe we need to unpack a little bit. You brought up so many great points and kind of like invited people to kind of use their own kind of judgment, right? That when it comes to understanding their values and what works for them, and it doesn't need to be that kind of black and white that you have to leave your religion in order to have a great sexual connection. I know you talk about these topics a lot, and I bet that many of our listeners are intrigued to learn more about you, about, I know you have a show and also a practice. So what are some of the places that they can find your content? Yeah, for sure. Everything that, that I do, you can find on my website, natashahelfer.com. Of course, I offer a lot of things for clients, right? Or people. I offer groups. I offer, of course, individual and couples therapy. I offer a coaching and consultation. So, you know, lots, lots of things. I also have a podcast like you. So, you know, you can go and check out my podcast and try to educate myself and the public when I do podcasts. So I, I love to talk about all these topics that kind of are in the intersection of religion and mental health and sexuality. And then also for professionals, if you're a professional, I'm starting a new project through the Bueller Institute. It's called LearnReligionTherapy.com because I believe that we have not gotten enough training in how to meet people in this very tender intersection, you know, because like you said, it's not as simple as just, oh, well, your religion has harmed you, so leave it. For a lot of people, their religion is is, is almost part, part of their culture, their ethnicity. It's part of their community. It's their family. They may, they may be very attached to it and want to stay very involved with it. And that's, of course, a beautiful thing. We do know also that we're going through huge faith transitions all over the world. There are people who are leaving organized religion kind of at a higher rate than we've seen in prior decades. So that's a lot of transition. I do a lot of faith transition support as well. So whether you're a professional or in the public, I hope that some of my resources could be helpful for you. Well, thank you so much for all the wonderful work that you do. We'll make sure that we leave the link to the website. For our listeners, it seems like whether they're professional or general public, they can benefit from your content. And thank you so much for your time. This was such a hopefully useful conversation for people. I personally learned a lot and hopefully we'll have you in the show in the future. Thank you so much. And you asked wonderful questions. I appreciate it. I hope you guys found our conversation meaningful. Religious trauma and internalized shame is one of the primary topics that come up 
in my practice. I know many people, although they immigrated from their conservative community or they're no longer part of faith-based community, but they are actively working on, on learning those messages. So if you know someone that might struggle with this, make sure you're sending this episode to them. And I want to remind you that do not forget about our live show. I haven't been this excited for an event for a few years. Whenever the other co-hosts and I come together to brainstorm, I have the best time. And we all are creative and came up with tons of fun activities that you can do. And more importantly, it is an event that you can come with your girlfriends, with your partner, although it's a sex show the level of explicit material is similar to this show. So you're not going to get surprised. No one is naked, so you can feel safe and you're going to have tons of fun. All right, make sure you're clicking on the link in the show note and I'll see you on February 10th in Know Your House. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.